the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. Um, this, is, this is where it always gets interesting for me when I get a chance to talk to somebody who's really smart. Uh, the author of a new book, The uh, Mind is Mightier, uh, is joining me by phone, and I just just want to tell you a little bit about uh, who we're going to be talking with. He's an American-Israeli scholar, uh, author, and entrepreneur. He uh, studied in uh, Haifa, but he ca- uh, co-founded two U.S. venture-funded technology companies, and he has 25 U.S. patents. Um, and and maybe we'll talk about some of those, but we're going to talk about. Uh, his new book, which, uh, uh, let me find it here in my notes, uh, is an innovative interpretation of the evolution of civilization through the lens of rising cognition. And hopefully we'll rise our own cognition a little bit as I talk with Bargior Goldberg. Bargior, welcome to the show. Tom, thank you so much. It's just a terrific opportunity to be on your program. Um. I, I want to talk about about some of your your patents, but but let's let's talk about the book first. The mind is mightier, and this idea of rising cognition. You've always had an interest in history, but to what degree does this book track the evolution of awareness and intellect? So, uh, as you say, I actually <clears throat> have a certain aptitude to mathematics. So, obviously, when I was young, I went to study science and engineering, and, I, and eventually I became an engineer. But very luckily, I also have a passion for history and for music, specifically classic music. So, uh, even though, you know, you're busy with life and, uh, and making a living and a family, etc., uh, I always had time to to do the other stuff, uh, and eventually uh, the two companies were sold, and I had some time, and I thought that I have a book in me. And uh, so this is actually a history book, but uh, in comparison to the traditional way of writing history, which is the history of events or personalities, right? Kings, sure. battles, and, and, you know, and and uh, court and gossip and all the good stuff. This is more a book about the evolution of ideas uh, and and historical processes 
And so what I've done in the book, uh, initially, as you say, there is an introduction to the whole issue of cognition and complexity. So cognition, everybody knows what it is, right? It's mental processes and, and just uh, the, one of the important messages that I have is something that one of the executives of Amazon just said last week. He said, the dividing line between the real and the cognitive, or you know, the real and the virtual, is disappearing. And he made a statement that Amazon is going to actually erase this line. And in my opinion, this line has been erased because we really live already in a totally virtual world, in a world that I call make-believe. Because when you think about our life, uh, of course, you know, there is the body and there is the, the food and there is the matter. Nobody disputes that. And we all admire, you know, the great sport people, the great singers, etc. But our life is really today all uh, make-believe. Our religions, our mythologies, our, our economy. Uh, think about it. You go to a store and for $20 bill, which is a piece of paper that is worthless, you bring home a plastic full of fruits and vegetables because we managed to invent this other world with that we believe that there is value in it. And the value of the money is kind of the promise that the government said that it's going to stand behind that piece of paper. Uh, and money eventually is a very simple concept, but also a very, very, very uh, complex concept. And in fact, when you think about our economy and the money that has evolved in the last 10,000 years, because before that there was no real economy. People were, um, people were bartering a little bit when they met because they really didn't settle. There was no concept of property. And um, so when they met and they need something, maybe you will give me some bananas for my potatoes. But there was no established value for anything. So in the last 10,000 years, the evolution of the economy, which is you know, very complex now, and money is immense. In fact, we are moving all the time into the cognitive world, right? In, initially, money was some pieces of something, shells maybe, or beads. Then it became metal, which really held real value because people always were interested in gold and silver in that kind of metals. So coins were made from that, and they had a certain value, right? In the Bible already, Abraham buys the Merata Machpelah for 400 pieces of silver. And then, you know, we develop new concept of bonds. The person who really responsible for the evolution of the British Empire, more than kings and generals and robbers on, on the high seas, is this uh, guy Montague who invented the government bond. So, so this guy goes to the market, I'm talking 300 years ago, and said, I am going to issue an IOU from the government of England, which at this time was really more the court. And, uh, and you will give me money, and I will give you this promise, and this promise will pay a high interest. I think that he paid something like 6%, which 300 years ago was a lot of money because there was no concept of inflation yet and things that, you know, that we are worrying about today. And, and he said the other thing, which was incredible, I cannot guarantee the bond, but I will guarantee the interest. And think about it. This concept actually brought so much money to the crown that they could fund this navy that controlled the world for, for 200 years, you know, before the really the rise of the United States. Well, in the in the book, you present an intellectual history as the evolution of our cognitive processes. Right. What is there a distinct difference between cognition and intellect? 
No, not really. I think that these are these are two ways of right. I mean, I, I you know I started by saying that cognition is something that everybody you know understands. So, intellect, smarts, brain power, to me, it's the same. But is there the great, the great enigma today is of course consciousness. I think that this is probably the gigantic enigma before philosophy and science. What is the thing? Every piece of living matter has a certain level of consciousness. What is it? Nobody knows. I'm I'm fascinated by this, and and I'm anxious to read the book. I, I apologize, I haven't read it yet, but it's um. And and the reason for that is is that I feel like throughout history there have been these great strides forward as we've looked to to try and solve the questions around us about uh, you know what what our purpose is here and how things work and all the various uh, engineering feats that you're so familiar with, um, but now there's social media and it. It I don't know, it just seems to me like maybe intellectually or cognitively we're backsliding. Well, you know, so so if, if <laughs> Do you, you know if what you I mean? Me, I, I want to I want to finish in a minute what I start to say about the economy. Sure. What is interesting me about the concept of the bond that he developed three hundred years ago is that today the situation is the same. So the United States government today owes us, it's mostly American that own uh, uh, United States bond, almost $30 trillion. Obviously, this money can never be paid, right? I mean, it's, it's almost 50% more the GDP of the country. This debt can never be paid. But you will notice that nobody seems to be worried about it. What people are worried about the interest. So when Congress, you know, because of party struggles, hesitates about paying the interest, world economy is, is shaking. So he understood something that 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 is true until today, that. Um, what is important is the interest. The debt can never be paid, right? The total debt of the world today is about $300 trillion. Obviously, debt can never be paid. Um, but as long as the interest is going to be paid, things are good. What is the meaning of $300 trillion debt in a world that has maybe GDP of 25% of it? You try to figure out, because I have to say that I'm not sure that I can. <laughs> an economist can right and they tell you don't worry it's okay the, the debt is not important what is important is growth so you know print more money and as long as the economy is growing we we're okay but yet it seems as at times Bargior, that the but that that the economy slows down or stops well, of course. So you know, so you know, you you started to touch on something that I think worries all of us. Uh, you asked about you know either slowing or even going back because of things that happen on on social media. The way I look at it is that we are really facing a very serious social challenge because the gap is not only huge but it will continue to grow. Uh, and, and before I start to say a word about it, uh, really the purpose of my book is to try to uh, to explain or to influence how important education is today. Uh, and education is not only getting a degree. Uh, education is actually continue to learn all your life, right? I mean, we are talking about the young generation that will have to go through three or four careers. You know, unlike us, we were lucky, right? I studied engineers, and I had a 45-year uh, career in engineering, which, of course, changed immensely. When I started my career, the computer was 
hardly there, right? I mean, my my master's work was still done on cards. If you, I don't know if you, I remember, I remember no cards. So I remember every day going with this packet of cards to 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 the this big uh, golem to this big computer center. There were no there were no uh, personal computers, but you know today the evolution we made is immense, and and I think what we see is that there is a small minority that is definitely following it. And, and sure, it takes an effort. You have to work at it every day because things are changing so quickly. Bargior, uh, I have to interrupt here. I'm sorry, but I have to go to a break. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk about this some more? Sure. All right. Sure. My guest is uh, Bargior Goldberg, author of the new book, The Mind is Mightier. We're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well, and we'll be right back. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hornets. Dan Sterling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. 
Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue now with our conversation uh, about the author of a new book called The Mind is Mightier, Bargior Goldberg. Bargior, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that, sir. Thank you. Um, in your book, The Mind is Mightier, um, you talk about... Um, uh, history and, and and structure it into four main sections um, with reflections and interpretations of history, mythology, religion, science, technology, the arts, music, law. It's it's really kind of the book of everything. <laughs> well, well you're you're right, <clears throat> but I had to decide if I'm going to write eighteen volumes. Right. Or a single book. And even this took about five years to write because a lot of studies you have to to do specifically on issues like language, which, you know, I never received formal education. What language is? Language is really the key to our cognition, right? Why there are other important languages in our life, like music or math. Everything comes from the language. The language is the way we think. What is thinking? We, we're speaking to ourselves. And the language was born somewhere 70 to 100,000 years ago, and nobody knows exactly the process. Obviously, there is a lot of discussion uh, and argument in the scientific world, right? Noah Chomsky, who was the great prophet of language in the last 50 years, thinks that it was mostly a genetic event, and others think that it was a ev- evolutionary process that took much more time and then eventually caught up. But language is probably kind of an, an emergence um, phenomena that we, you know, we use every day and, and, uh, and we don't understand well, but there are like 6,000 languages in the world uh, and it seems like every small tribe wants its own language. There's something inherent in the importance of the language. But um, but our cognition is really um, becoming so important now, and that's why I think that we, we have to pay attention to the thing, and we start to talk about it before the break, that education is now so important because things are changing. Uh, I'll give you an example, right? I, I need to do a promotion of my, of my book, and I went to the Barnes & Noble store here, and she told me, hey, you know, you have to start to use Instagram. I never used Instagram. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to use Instagram, but, you know, I have to learn how to do it. It's not that complicated after all. Uh, and the world is changing. The effect, you, you asked before, the effect of social media. Uh, look, you know, the, the, the origin was very positive. The intentions were very positive. Of course. We looked Zuckerberg on television, he looked like this almost young David, right? He's a prophet talking about uh, people from all over the world talking to one another. It was so idealistic. Well, we know what happened. Uh, Because eventually an operation like this becomes a slave to the money. And today, Facebook is what? Almost a trillion dollars. So you understand what is driving it. It's not that new. And and the question becomes now: How do you regulate this monster that I think is is uh, coming after us? Uh, it's very very dangerous. I think that what's happening both in politics and the last year in COVID is you know very detrimental to our civilization. But you know the the politicians of today are people my age, so they are more the product of the industrial revolution. And we are now in a new revolution. And I'm not sure exactly how well they can regulate what's happening in the industries. It's mostly run by young people, and they take advantage of it. It is, right? I mean, I, I hate to say it, but 
But you're right, in certain ways, we, some of us are going back. And we start to talk about the fact that the gap is created, in my opinion, accelerating, because there is a small part of us that is ready to make the effort and to follow and to understand what's happening and, you know, and, and continue to be students all their lives. But there's also a big part of us that doesn't want to do it or thinks that, you know, it's good enough to go to get a degree and there you are. And, and the gap is growing and that will create, it creates already social tensions that worry me. And should worry everybody. Yeah, I, and and I feel uh, feel the same way. As you look at the history of cognition, um, and you've mentioned a couple um, language certainly, and and economics, um, and you also refer to um, music as as a language. And and my ears perked up on that because I used to play music for a living and. I'm always uh, amazed at how universally appreciated music is. You know, you don't have to know a language to appreciate the way a person plays the piano or the harp or um, the violin. If we, in looking at history, are there are there key points like like graduations where we that that show the distance traveled and and the progression forward um as, aside from economics and language well you know it, it's an interesting question because <clears throat> like you mentioned the the industrial revolution for example um <clears throat> you know are are, th are there moments as as some say was the printing press uh, you know, a pivotal moment. Um, you know, you know what I'm saying. In in putting together this treatment that you've done in the book, the mind is mightier. Um, have, did you point out certain, I don't know, graduation points where we move from learning a little bit to learning a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more? Well, you know, so so I think that you know, if you look at the big picture, it is hard to imagine that today we are smarter than Aristotle, which is about 2,500 years. So, in terms of brain power, it is very difficult to to argue that you know we are much smarter than you know the ancient Greeks. Uh, so, like 2,500 years ago, but on the other hand. Uh, you have to realize that that we are part of this cognitive cloud, that we are not individual, but we are part of a social order. And the social order made tremendous progress. Now, usually, you know, you mentioned, for example, the, the print. The print was a huge revolution, obviously, and, uh, and, and many historians even speculate that the... Martin Luther was not possible without the print. Uh, so, you know, great revolution that happened because, and in fact, in the history of language, the print is, is a milestone, obviously. But these things in most cases, and yes, of course, you have to, when you write that kind of work, you have to focus on these step changes. But it also has to be understood that while we give credit to a person, so Gutenberg or Newton or Kepler or, you know, or Galileo, the majority of that work, be it in art or in music or in science, is done by very many people. And eventually, you know, there is one integrator that takes all this work together and comes up with a new paradigm. So Newton, if you look at Newton, right, I mean, probably the greatest genius in the history of physics that did also uh, mathematics, he kind of invented the calculus. There, there was all this information. So the concept of inertia came from Galileo. And the idea of the R-square law, which was really Newton's great achievement, right, I mean, to cognitively to think that it is the same force that attracts the apple 
and also attracts the moon to Earth and Earth to the sun. So, so incredible uh, leap in thinking. The ask were actually existed before. There were speculations. Uh, and in fact, there's a, there's a story that is too long to tell now about uh, Halley, you know, the famous guy that eventually from the comet that speculated with friends and they said that it cannot be proven and he went to Cambridge to meet with Newton. And Newton said, yeah, I, I proved it, but the numbers don't figure out because the measurement that they had at this time were wrong. Uh, and and the, the person who tells the story said, you know, the whole world was looking for a solution. And it was in Newton's room for 20 years, and he didn't think that it was good enough. But <laughs> So it existed, but then you had to have somebody who could do the mathematical proof, which... Newton apparently could. So we have to realize that we usually give credit to one name. Today, you know, the people who get the Nobel Prize usually uh, are part of a very large team that uh, that is working, you know, for years, uh, sometimes hundreds of people. But eventually you can give the prize to 100 per and you give it to the leader of the group that in many cases is really more of a aging bio, uh, bureaucrat than the great scientists that started to do it. So, um, yes, the history of cognition, and especially music, you, you ask about music, and uh, because music is, you know, one of my life passions. There is especially very large chapter on music on the book. Um, music specifically, you know, we are talking about the Gregorian chants. Then we're talking about uh, uh, the high Middle Ages with the minstrel thinking that became separated from religious thinking. Then you have the uh, Madrigal, and then the invention of the opera in 1600. The specific persons who, who came together and decided we are going to imitate what the Greeks did 2,000 years ago, and we are going to write this music that is now not only uh, following the words, but has a power by itself. And then, you know, the concerto was invented around 1670, which was a huge innovation. Music without words. And then, you know, we have the Baroque, and then we have the classical period, where, you know, personalities like Beethoven that did not only change everything and made music so cognitive, so mental, rather than just the beautiful melody. Uh, and then, of course... Or the storytelling that, that minstrels did, for example. Once again? I, I, was, I was just going to say, it, it became more intellectual as people listened to and and try to understand what the, the musician was trying to get across in instrumental music like concertos, as opposed to the storytelling that minstrels had been doing. Right. So, so what happened, the music suddenly, by itself, without word, had to start to express um, emotions or a story. So, you know, if you listen, for example, to Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, the pastoral, it's a story of nature. So you have uh, initially the ideal nature, then you have the storm, then you have the end of the storm, and it's all in the music, but now you have to understand a little bit better uh, intellectually what's happening in the music, not just sitting and listening to, to the beautiful tune. And Beethoven specifically, really, it seems, if you track his history, uh, and, you know, he wrote a lot of pieces. Uh, the beginning were very influenced by Mozart and Haydn, but eventually became his, himself. Um, very simple uh, uh, issues that he developed. So, for example, you, you take the Fifth Symphony. Pa, 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 that's it. These four notes become the total story of the first movement that lasts more than 10 minutes. And in fact, if you look at the score and you listen carefully, these four notes continue to show up in the second movement and the third movement and the fourth movement. The whole symphony 
is this tiny piece of music that is being modulated and converted and shows up in different ways. So totally cognitive. To me, he's like the man that brought cognition to music more than anybody else. And in fact, some of the music experts call him pointillist. So if you remember, uh, after the Impressionists, we have pointillism where painters made the whole picture from points, points. Basically what your television screen is today doing also, only there are you know, millions of points and you don't see them, but there was this era of pointillism. Uh, he did it in music like 100 years early. Uh, and some of the pieces are amazing. Uh, I'm not sure everybody is familiar with all the details, but on his um, on his screen quartet number seven, the second movement, starts with 15 times playing the same tone. And that becomes the whole movement that lasts, again, more than 10 minutes. So now there's no, there's not even the ta 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 ta. It's like ta 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 ta, and that becomes the subject of a whole movement. So for him, you know, he's a great innovator in variations and improvisation. That was the great skill, and unfortunately, he was so gigantic that. Composers until today look at these scores and they say, no, what can we do now after this man? But, you know, Bedouin was also a very great artist in the fact that he recognizes he, that he is a genius. And he was the first person, in my opinion, that brought respect to artists. Uh, you know, generation before him, Haydn said, you know, I work to please my master, not Beethoven. Beethoven worked to please himself. And he wrote the music to very, very high standard because that were his standards. So, yeah. Is the evolution of cognition a, a gradual building on what was done before, or are there big leaps? Well, the way I look at it is that it is absolutely the accumulation of everything that happened before. And, you know, as Newton used to say, I've seen far because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And uh, to me, it looks, I envision the evolution of our cognition as a ball, that every time that some that new idea, new art, uh, new invention, new pattern hits it, it grows. But it's based on the total ball. And in fact, you know, we are very lucky that because we have a language and because we have writing and because we could accumulate this uh, information, this ball, this idea of uh, our cognition growing in time has really not that shrunk in history. When you think about it, yes, there are a bunch of books that we know that were lost uh, from Aristotle, for example. And there are, you know, a bunch of operas that were lost from Monteverdi and other composers were when music was not as important as it is today and they couldn't even imagine that they're going to sell you know millions of copies of, of songs and things were lost but in the great scheme the majority of the information that we collected over you know these 10,000 years is still with us and keeps growing. But as you say, it is always based on the past one. Think about music or how music leveled itself from the troubadour, say, the Gregorian chants were monophonic, then, the then you start to modulate, to add more voices, and to harmonize it. Or in mathematics, right? You start with algebra and geometry, and you move into calculus, and then you move into the other things that uh, that uh, happen. And you know, today the edge of mathematics is so complicated that really very few of us can comprehend it. Think about it. We we just had the proof of the last Fermat theorem about uh, what ten years ago. This British guy. There are probably five people in the world that could check the proof and say if it was right or wrong. 
Because then you start to ask yourself, so complex, what does it mean? If out of seven billion people, three to five can even comprehend what it is and critique if there is an error in it, what exactly does it mean? Is this science or is it starting to be more a kind of a religion? Well, I th- I think your book sounds kind of optimistic. I didn't mean to sound pessimistic when I talked about social media and sliding backwards. Uh, you, you talk about humanity continuing to evolve on an accelerating path of rising cognition. Um, in your book, The Mind is Mightier. My guest is uh, Bargior Goldberg and... Um, Bargior, we're getting close to the uh, to the end here, but I want to ask one more question before we start to wrap up, and that that is, um, has the technology that has evolved in this, uh, you know, in the in the second half of of the last century, is it as as big a leap forward as, say, for example, the industrial revolution or the printing press or um, or Beethoven symphonies? Well, let me start to say that, you know, Darwinism posits that, that yeah, we are, you know, that the whole thing has no purpose, that we are not more important than the worm, and that it doesn't go anywhere, which, you know, is something that I dispute, but scientifically I have no way of proving it. I think that most of us believe that the information revolution is as important, as revolutionary, as transforming as the Industrial Revolution, because the Industrial Revolution really gave us machines that could do the hard work, so engines, generators, things like that, which is now, you know, ubiquitous all over the world. The Information Revolution is giving us machines that help us thinking. So uh, AI machines, right, the the great thing in the last 10, 10, 15 years are driving into places that help us thinking better. And we can do things with these machines that it's not a a matter of muscle and moving stones anymore, but moving us forward in a way that uh, is unfathomable, right? You cannot design computer chips today without computers. And AI machines are already making much better decisions than we do. There is no doubt... (laughs) that the computer is a much better driver than we are. And the reason that it's not allowed yet, the regulator is probably right, because if we let this happen too quickly, you know, 20 million people will lose their jobs, and it is a big issue. But uh, big data, you know, our mind cannot do big data. We were not designed to be able to analyze 200 million uh, facts. Bargior, I, 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 I have to interrupt. We, we have to put an end to it, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yes. It, actually, you can take, if you go to, uh, you can go to Facebook, and it is on Bargiora Writer. Okay. So my first name, Bargiora Writer. Well, Bargiora Goldberg, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. Thanks, Tom. It is a pleasure. Take care. We're going to take a short break and let our broadcast partner squeeze in a few words. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hey, (laughs) this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. 
We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I would like to take you to the opera where you are going to hear a Mozart opera, which is nothing but an opera written by Mozart. (laughs) This is an opera in one act, and it begins when the curtain rises. Otherwise, you couldn't see a thing. The stage setting is a kind of a forest. There are two large trees, which of course indicates the forest. It's a kind of a small forest, but it's a forest. (laughs) First, the tenor comes in. He is supposed to meet his soprano, as they usually call those ladies. But she's a little late this particular season, so he hides himself behind one of the trees in order to surprise her when she comes in a little later, which she does. So when she arrived, she can't find him because he is occupied behind one of the trees. (laughs) Uh, He's 
with a knife carving her name into the <laughs> scenery. Now, she doesn't know that he is there, but, uh, well, as a matter of fact, she must know it because she saw it during rehearsals. <laughs> Either she pretends that she doesn't know it or she's just plain stupid. Whatever it is, she gets across the stage somehow and takes place behind the other tree, which for the occasion hides her <laughs> to a certain extent. Now, the chorus comes in, but nobody knows why except Mozart, and he is dead. <laughs> and that's just too bad. Next. Your father comes in, and he is a very old man, primarily because she is a very old soprano. <laughs> and he is very angry because apparently she is not his daughter. Now, this has nothing to do with the opera. I found that out myself. <laughs> and that's what we call research. Anyway, he decides that he has had enough of her, so he tells her to die, and that's exactly what she's going to do. <laughs> and with that, the opera ends, and people can go home. Now I take you to the opera house, where you hear the conductor's footsteps when he enters the orchestra pit. Here he comes. Yeah, he walks sideways. <laughs> and this is the overture. This, ladies and gentlemen, was the first part of the overture. Now you hear the second part, and that's exactly the same. little bloop is an extra bloop we have in case we shoot one shot of bloops but that has never happened so we have a lot of bloops left over now the curtain rises and the tenor arrives he's a little tall fellow he comes in he comes in from the left in a single file goes behind the tree right away. <laughs> now the leading lady arrives. She is supposed to fill the part of the soprano. Now she not only fills it, she overflows it a little bit. She's a big husk, a big, uh, uh, she's a big soprano, that's what she is. She's what we call a messy soprano. She comes in in a single pile. She also arrives backwards, but nobody notices the difference. goes behind the other tree. <laughs> she can hardly wait because... Uh, see, she is... She supposedly hasn't... She hasn't met him for a long time, so she is just... She's anxious. Now is the time for the chorus. And the light is dimmed, so you can hardly see these people when they arrive, and that's why they're dressed in a kind of cheap underwear. <laughs> Because there is no reason to spend a lot of money for costumes when you can't see them. Right? 
That's the way the management of this theater feels about it, and that's the way it's gonna be. <laughs> Here they come. Bread and butter. Now they're all in and they fool around in the dark for a little while. This is a mixed chorus. Bread and butter. Now they're out, they get the money and go home. Next, a baritone comes in and sings, Torre ador, Torre ador. But he finds out that he's in the wrong opera. Now, the father comes in, the old man, and he is the basso. almost now told her what he had to say and she understands him quite well so now she prepares herself to die but before she dies she sings an area the so-called die area she seems very happy about it. She dies by stabbing herself between the two big trees. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. I want to say thanks to all my guests today, starting with Barguer Goldberg, uh, author of The Mind is Mightier, and uh, I'm going to have to think about that one for a little while. Before that, we talked with uh, paramedic Peter Canning about his book, Killing Season, a paramedic's dispatches from the front lines of the opioid epidemic. And we started out this morning... Uh, with a little bit of a technical issue, but uh, I think we've repaired it for the replays, um, and a conversation with the author of Diary of the Cat Named Carrot, Aaron Marin. Good night, everybody. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show, and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. 
you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.